When you're ready, let's start this journey. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with New York Times bestselling fantasy author Peter V. Brett. Let's find out about his writing process, his newest novel, The Desert Prince, book one in the Nightfall Saga, and Love of Libraries. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. And this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. Hello. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you? Doing really good. Of course, the first question is, can you introduce our listeners to your newest title, um, The Desert Prince? Uh, Hi, I'm Peter V. Brett. I'm the author of the internationally bestselling Demon Cycle series from Delray Books, um, which is published in 27 languages worldwide. My new book, The Desert Prince, is the beginning of a new series um, that is linked to the Demon Cycle. So you do not need to have read the previous books in order to enjoy this, the Nightfall Saga, which of which The Desert Prince is the first book. Um, but if you have read those other books, you will see some familiar faces uh, make cameos and, and um, you'll have a little bit of a head start on other readers, but the book is designed for new readers to be able to jump on right now without having read the previous books. The book follows two characters, uh, Olive Paper and Darren Bales, who are the children of the heroes of the previous series. Uh, and they're focusing on what it's like to grow up in such a big shadow. I don't know if any of you have ever disappointed your parents, you know, by your choice of who to date or where to go to school or what to study, but imagine if your parents literally saved the world. How can you be anything but a disappointment? And so uh, they think they're just struggling with that, but then they realize that the problem, world's problems aren't all solved and uh, are drawn into adventures of their own. So obviously this is a, a generational kind of continuation as opposed to a direct sequel to the, the previous uh, cycle, for lack Correct. of a better word. <laughs> it, takes place, it takes place 15 years later. Um, the, the main cast is all new. So there are some cameos from the previous series, but uh, the focus is on the new characters, new problems, new adventures, so that people don't feel like they need to uh, refer back to the older books in order to enjoy this. Uh, How hard was it for you just to decide whether or not you wanted to just do a continuation of the demon cycle or just starting over? You know, like when you're an author, you usually have a lot of ideas for things. Um, So I had, uh, I basically had two ways I could go after I finished the demon cycle. I wanted the demon cycle to end on a firm note. I wanted people to be able to binge it and get to the end and feel like it was satisfying and uh, all the plot threads are tied up and everything is uh, in a neat bow so that that series would be satisfying and stick the landing. Um, So restarting a new series set in the same world was challenging because I didn't wanna undo any of the things that I had previously done. And so I had, I, but I knew that I wanted to tell these stories. I knew that I had more stories to tell in this world. Uh, and so I had been planning for, for years to start this series after the previous one ended. Um, and so I was laying the groundwork, even in the final books of the Demon Cycle, to set this up in a way where if you'd read the books, you might not have noticed, but I was carefully positioning chess pieces around the world to make it work out 
Um, but I also have ideas for entirely new series. Uh, and so I've got some of that working on the back burner while I, while I do these books. And the Desert Prince is very much a coming of age story for both Olive Prince and Darren Bales. So uh, what made you decide to focus on the coming of age aspects? And will we be seeing these characters in the next type, next books? In the original Demon Cycle series, all of the characters started out as children. And I would show these sort of formative events of their childhood that took the life they thought they were going to lead and pushed them onto a path that was unexpected. And then uh, after that happened, I would jump ahead several years, age them up to adults, so that when they encounter problems as adults, you, the reader, sort of know why they make the decisions they make based on these things that happened to them when they were younger. And that was a really effective storytelling tactic, and I really uh, enjoyed using it throughout the series with all of the major characters so that you could really get to know them. But there was part of me that sort of wished that I hadn't jumped over those formative years, because there's a lot of things that, that define who you are that happen just at a certain point in your life that can never happen again. The same way like, like people tend to gravitate as they get older to the music that they loved when they were 13, you know, like there's a time in your life when your mind is blown by everything and then you sort of become a more jaded adult. And so I really wanted to sort of, with this series, like I start with the characters a little older than I did in the previous series, but then we're just gonna stick with them at that age and watch them sort of stumble through problems and figure, figure out solutions and try and find who they are in a more uh, organic way than in the previous books where I would sort of jump ahead and, and then show you who they are as adults and you would sort of have to fill in the pieces. Um, so Olive and Darren will be the stars of the series throughout. Um, there certainly a, is a big supporting cast, many of whom will get more focused as the series goes on, but Olive and Darren will remain the main characters for all three books. You had mentioned in a previous interview that fantasy kind of allows you to write real about real world issues uh, in, a, in a way that kind of gives it a little more subtlety. So you're not just calling certain things out. Um, how much of the real life do you kind of tend to put into your fantasy? The emotional content, I think. I think that I like to create characters that are different from who I am and um, really sort of do a deep dive into what it's like for them to both explore it for myself and also explore it for the reader to give people a chance to really sort of think deeply about different things, think deeply about religion, think deeply about culture, think deeply about gender or about mental health or like by having characters that experience these things and doing it in a way that is respectful to the characters and respectful to what they're going through you give the readers time to sort of explore those issues for themselves as well and how they feel about the decisions the characters make and what they're going through and I think that that is what reading is all about you know you want to from the safety of your own armchair, as it were, you want to explore things that are not safe or explore things that uh, need a little more thinking about or that can be confusing or that can be anxiety producing and sort of work them out, you know, in the safety of your own mind. And so that's something that I really enjoy doing in books. My next question was kind of a continuation of that because many of your characters fit into the LGBTQ community. 
and reading is a great way to build empathy and inclusivity. So was there anything that made you want to make sure that that diversity was represented in your novels? And have your readers shown appreciation in seeing themselves um, in your work? I see that diversity in my life. And so it started to, I really wanted to reflect it in the books more fully than I had um, before. And so there are LGBTQ characters, you know, throughout the, the Demon Cycle books, but they weren't always the, fo- their stories weren't always the main focus. And so uh, with The Desert Prince, I really wanted to expand the cast and do it in a way that felt similar to what my life was like for real. I mean, like certainly living in New York City, you're exposed to all kinds of people. Um, it's one of the things that I love about it. Um, and so I wanted my books to reflect that. And so I, uh, the main character, Olive Paper, is intersex. Um, and that's something that she needs to figure out as the series goes on. Um, she was assigned uh, female at birth um, for a variety of reasons, some of them uh, real world reasons and some of them ancient prophecies <laughs> like that uh, said that her chances were better at survival uh, if she was raised female. And for the beginning of her life, she's entirely happy. Uh, but then when circumstances allow her to explore who she is more fully, she realizes that gender is a box that she doesn't necessarily fit in and trying to define that box for herself so that she can step outside of it is uh, one of the main themes of this new series. And so that's something that I really have been thinking quite a bit about. And even in the language, when you're, when I was writing this book, you start to really, when you really think about gender a lot, you start to see how gendered so much of languages, so many of our figures of speech, so many of like just the the way our language is designed is gendered in ways that are that don't always make sense. And so trying to unplug from that was a learning experience as a writer as well as for the reader. And so I wanted to tell that story in a way that was accessible to everyone. And so I was very careful to um, put it together in a way that that would allow LGBTQ people to to feel seen, but also to allow people who are not as familiar with that community a way, a a window in and a chance to think about some things that maybe they hadn't thought about or maybe that they were thinking about in a way that wasn't entirely generous uh, in a new light. Mm -hmm. And in addition to just... um you really step outside of gender relegated norms with your characters. So like there are so many fierce female warriors and then including like Celine and Misha and then Darren, he's a little bit more artistic. He's sensitive. Um, He would rather be playing music. And so he's not really a warrior unless he has to be. So how did you develop your characters? The baseline that I started with was the reality that all parents face is that their children are not the perfect clones of themselves that they sort of hope that they would be. Every time everyone I know, including myself, who's had children sort of expected them to, well, they're going to be just like me and they're not, they never are. 
And so that was something that I really wanted to focus on in the stories. And so my, my baseline for every character was like, well, their child is going to be the opposite of who they are because children rebel. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, Leisha Paper, who was one of the stars of the original series, broke out of gender roles in some ways, but it was, it was more sort of not being forced into the feminine roles that, that were traditional in her patriarchal village. But she became a, a doctor and a uh, political leader and ended up being a, a duchess and wanted to raise her daughter to be just like her and to be a doctor and, and to, you know, grow up to be duchess one day. And her daughter's a fighter, you know, and that mm -hmm. is something that, that, you know, even, you know, this woman who thought that she had broken out of gender roles for herself was realizing that she was still keeping her child in a gender box. And that's sort of what real life is, is like. I think each generation thinks that they're fixing the mistakes that their parents made, but they're still making their own batch and they need children to rebel from that and, and remind them of that. And so that was sort of the focus. And so with Darren, his dad, you know, is literally saved the world, you know, is the most famous demon fighter in history. And he's not a fighter. He doesn't want to be a fighter. Um, his powers give him what I call supernatural autism. Because he was born with a little magic, his senses are so acute that he senses everything. He can hear things a mile away. He can smell everything like a bloodhound. He can hear like a bat. He can see like an eagle. But his brain is not able to keep up with it all the time. And it gives him so much more input than other people have that he's sometimes out of sync with everyone around him. He'll encounter someone, he'll be talking to them and they'll be saying one thing, but he'll be thinking, well, they smell kind of scared. Why do they smell scared? And, and what's that, you know, like, and, and what, why is their heart be beating so fast? And, and so he's getting all of this input and trying to figure out what it all means. But in the meantime, he's not doing the sort of like eye contact you know, face-to-face uh, -face conversation that most people are, are comfortable with and feel is polite. And so he often seems like he's, he's just out of sync with everyone because he's trying to piece together all of this additional input that other people aren't getting. And in the same way that I wanted uh, LGBTQ characters, I also wanted characters who were neurodiverse. And so this was a really good example uh, for me to use to introduce a character like that into the world and give some insight into how they function and into what it's like for them to try and interact with people who don't get input on the same wavelength. Obviously you, you are a, what we would consider an epic fantasy author. And all of this stems back to kind of going back into that Tolkien era. Uh, do you still kind of consider yourself a, a grandson of Tolkien? Great grandson, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, I kind of think of it, you know, it's it's weird, um, but I would think of it as sort of for me at least. It was it was Tolkien first, and then it was Terry Brooks, who was sort of Tolkien's natural successor, at least on the bestseller lists, and then uh, probably George R. R. Martin, and then like I was the generation after that, and all of those things influenced my work and, and also literally hundreds of other, like I, I 
all I ever read was fantasy books when I was a kid. I've read hundreds of them. And so like boiling it down to three authors is not really fair to the, the massive number of influences before. But in that sort of lineage, I think like Tolkien created the, this sort of like big epic world where you had to travel long distances and learn new languages in order to accomplish your goals. Um, Terry Brooks was a much more wholesome sort of safe escape world, I felt. Martin was the opposite. Uh, everyone felt in danger all the time. Um, and I sort of blended all of that together into my own work. I saw that you had an interview with Terry Brooks recently. What was it like to interview with a great? I, I like, it's very difficult for me to, I met Terry several times now. Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to not fanboy. Like yeah. the first time I met him, was at Comic-Con and I just put out The Warded Man, which was my first novel. I hadn't even put it out yet. It was, it was still in um, manuscript form. And I wanted to ask him to read it to, to offer a blurb. And so my publisher, like he's at the same publisher I am. And, and they're like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll introduce Terry. He's super sweet. Come on, come over and meet him. And like, so I was supposed to be like, hello, professional author. I am also a professional author. You know, like, can we do business? And instead, I just pulled out my copy of the Elfstones of Shannara and was like, will you please sign my book? <laughs> and like, it was one of my bigger fanboy moments. Um, and, and in all the times that I've met him since, like it took a long time for him to beat calling him sir out of me. Uh, I just, you know, he's just, he's the sweetest person. He's one of the most prolific writers in fantasy and was a tremendous influence on my life. And, and when you, one of the wonderful things about books is that authors can have this amazing impact on your life and never know it. And so like at a time when I needed an escape, he was there. And so you meet the author and you have all of this bound up emotion, but they don't know who you are at all. And so keeping that in check, is something that's a challenge for everyone and it makes me much more appreciative when people are like that with me because I know I know what it's like and can therefore really be empathetic about it. Yeah, when you're talking about narrowing it down into three people I kind of came into the fantasy world I guess backwards in the sense that my first experience were the Dragonlance Chronicles or the uh, Streams of Silver, Halfling's Gems, that yeah, kind of yeah. stories and then working backwards into the the more the D and D tie-in books. Yeah. I, read, I read all of them, literally all of them. Um, but as you said, it, the the genre has kind of matured as we've gone along. From where you had the the safety net of you know if if Conan or Drizzitz or those were written today, I don't know if they would survive through all of the books anymore. Just because you don't have that safety net of of those those first characters. Well, and, and that's something that maybe you need a little bit when you're younger, or at least I did, was the sense that like, okay, like, you know, things look dark right now, but all of these characters are going to sit and have a laugh at a bar at the end of this book and, uh, you know, still have all their limbs. <laughs> and, um, and I think that one of the things that Martin introduced was the sense that, you know, like, I don't care how great a warrior my character is, if three guys with knives come at him, like he's in danger. If one person with a knife comes at him, he's in danger or she's in danger. And that sense of being scared for the character, I think is really important 
to really get someone in, into the right headspace in an adventure story. And so I want to create a sense that people aren't safe, that like people that you care about can, can have bad things happen to them. Because I think that it, if there's no stakes, then battles and, and adventures don't really have any, don't have the same impact. There have to be stakes. And so uh, I think that that was an important advancement that I came into as I got older with my writing and, and it, changed, it changed how I write and it changed how I look at stories. But it does mean sometimes that like a character that you like doesn't make it to the end. Do you think of, uh, obviously, you know, we're talking about epic fantasy and, and the new book is a fantasy. Do you think of yourself as a fantasy writer or just a writer in general? I think of myself as a fantasy writer. I, th I think that's fair because I, I, it's what I love and what I've always done. I do think that a portion of the fantasy writer skill set is transferable to other types of writing. I think that I, like, I certainly have done other kinds of writing in my life and I'm capable of doing them. But what I love to do and what I want to do is, is fantasy writing. And I think that that's where, that's where I specialized, you know, so I, I got my writing degree and then I specialized in, in one subsection of it, the same way a doctor or, or a lawyer might specialize in something. Do you think it's a necessarily a good or a bad thing being known as a, a genre style writer? People debate about this sort of thing all the time. I think that when you put too much of your identity into your career, you can get very defensive when people don't classify you the way you should be classified. I don't really go through life thinking like, I'm a writer and I do writer things and I'm a writer, you know, like, and I like live a writer life and like, I have to like, and there are people who do and I, I like, I'm not judging them for that, but that's just not how I really self-identify. I self-identify as like, <laughs> you know, like, like certainly with like a kid under five in the house, like, she didn't give a shit that I'm a writer. <laughs> um, and so in my day-to-day -day life, that's not really how I think of myself. I don't have a lot of patience for people who look down on genre writing because I think genre writing is where some of the most exciting and compelling things happen. And also where some of the, frankly, some of the most popular things happen. And so uh, when people act like it's sort of beneath literary writing, I kind of just roll my eyes and, and, you know, I'm not interested in engaging in that argument anymore. I know it's not true because I, I know the depth and the breadth that genre writing covers and how it's able to cover a lot of things that literary fiction can't. And so, uh, you know, if people don't see that, that's on, that's on them. The numbers are against them. It's definitely become something where just so many of these the pop culture, uh, things that we're watching or consuming now have, have definitely pulled from this, be it comic books or uh, the Wheel of Time series is coming up, Game of Thrones, all that kind of stuff is, is just the mainstream. So obviously, you know, the people it's want great it. Time to be in the industry. It's a great time to be in this industry. I, I think that like much of my success, you know, like I want to pretend that my success is all based on, on my books and, and hopefully a lot of it is, but I also just like, I published my books you know, right after the Lord of the Rings movies came out and suddenly got everybody like on board with fantasy in a way that they weren't before. And so they were looking for new content. You know, I was in the right place at the right time to provide that content. And so uh, as special effects have gotten better and more things have been incorporated into movies that has brought it into popular culture. And then the readers of that group go look for more 
and that's where they find fantasy books. So it's a good time to be doing this. And how did you get started writing? I got in trouble in third grade. Um, <laughs> I wrote, we had to, we like, we had library class. Now, um, you may not know what a library is. Uh, they, you, it used to be in school, there would be this room that was just full of books and they were like organized and you had to like learn this decimal system to find a book. And um, yeah, there was a whole class. We had a library class every week. And in library class in third grade, uh, we were assigned to write a poem. And I wrote this poem, which I could recite, but I'm not going to, uh, about a unicorn. And the teacher accused me of plagiarizing. She was, she was like, you didn't write this. You couldn't have written this. You must have copied this out of a book. Where did you copy this from? And, and I like held steadfast that I had written it myself. And like, there was this whole thing. And like, you know, like they called my parents and said I was a liar. And, you know, like it was the whole thing. But on a personal level, I was so stoked. I was like, I wrote something so good. She thinks I stole it. So from that moment on, I wanted to be a writer. And so I started, you know, we'd get assigned a writing assignment uh, to write three pages and I would write 10, you know, and I would have, you know, like it was like a point of pride that I would write more than was assigned. And then uh, I wanted to be, at first I wanted to be a comic book writer, but that required collaboration with an artist. And I discovered that that can take a lot longer and I, I liked being in control all the time. And so I switched to novel writing. I wrote my first novel when I was 17 in high school, a terrible, terrible book. And then uh, I tried to rewrite it in college based on what I'd learned over the next couple of years and it got better, but it was still horrible. And so then I started something new and I wrote another three books that were basically Dungeon and Dragons tie-in books, sort of like the ones we were just talking about. And then I went to college and I got a degree in 18th century English literature and art, which uh, qualified me for nothing, but I still knew that I wanted to be a writer. And so I uh, got the first publishing related job I could get out of college, which was editing phone books. Once again, for those of you who don't know, a phone book is just a gigantic book full of people's phone numbers. Um, they used to have these before the internet and someone had to call every number and make sure that it was still the right number. <laughs> So I did that for a while, and then I moved into medical journals, which paid a lot better, um, but was still not the kind. I, so I was editing, but I was editing for grammar and usage, not, uh, you know, and, and sort of turning a doctor's medical speak into something that, that was more readable, but it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. Um, and so I did that. I was in medical publishing for 10 years, but all along I was writing books and um, on my fourth like full novel somebody pushed me into showing it to an agent and I did and uh he seemed very excited about it and then he read it and he rejected it and said it was uh not nearly as good as it sounded when I talked it up but it was good enough that if I had anything else to show him he would take a look so I showed him one of my older books and again he rejected it but took the time to take me out for coffee, sit me down with the book and say, look, it's clear that you taught yourself how to write. You're making a lot of amateur mistakes, but there's also a lot of amazing stuff in here. And if you can just break out of that amateur mold, you could, you could level up. 
And he gave me a book on writing called Writing to Sell by Scott Meredith. And I read that and it was like a light bulb clicked on in my head. I suddenly understood story structure in a way that I hadn't before. And I rewrote the first book that I showed him and that was The Warded Man. And so I submitted it one more time and I was like, okay, this is the last time I'm gonna submit something. And if this gets rejected, like maybe this writing gig just isn't for me. And I remember I was sitting in my cubicle and I got a phone call from the agent. He's like, this is the best book I've read all year. I'm gonna, I wanna take it to market right away. Um, he's like, don't get excited. It might be a long time before it sells. It might never sell, but you know, I, I'm excited to go start selling this. A month later, we had offers from several major publishers. Three months after that, it had sold in about seven countries worldwide. And I had reached a point where I wasn't, I still wasn't making quite as much as I was at my day job, but I was making enough that I could pay my bills responsibly. And so I decided to take two years and see if this writing thing worked out. Um, and if it didn't, like I could always get another job that I didn't like, you know, uh, and that was 13 years ago. That's awesome. And you have quite an international audience. I've been seeing all the different covers, all the designs are really cool to see when they're in different countries. I have been very fortunate to have some amazing translators and amazing international publishers who've really done great things with the books. Um, and the best readers. I mean, I guess every author says they have the best readers, but I really do. And so uh, I didn't expect the books to be as popular as they were in other countries. And sometimes there's like some countries where they're way more popular than others. And I don't really know entirely why. I'm probably uh, five times as popular in Germany and the UK and 10 times as popular in Poland. Um, and I couldn't tell you why, like, I'm not going to fight it. <laughs> I'm happy That's with it. Awesome. But, uh, it's awesome. And uh, because I was lucky enough to be publishing in the internet age, all of those readers have formed sort of a community where they like through like fan art contests and um, book giveaways and things, I sort of like got all of those people talking and now people are friends with each other like across the sea or like from different countries and with different language barriers uh, through my work. And that is something that's been incredibly gratifying. Yeah, I had a question later that was going to ask about your amazing fans, especially with the all of the fan art contest. And there's so many mediums are working in. What is it like having someone create something based off of your work? It's the best feeling in the world, literally. Um, there was a time when I also wanted to be an artist. Um, I took art classes throughout high school and college. Like I I don't like to use the word talent because I'm not convinced that talent really exists. I think that the vast majority of talent is just hard work and practice. But for whatever reason, art didn't click for me the way that writing did. And so while I love it and I you know, minored in art history and I um, practiced a lot of mediums, like I didn't get to do it professionally. Um, but when I would have like giveaways, like I, I get stacks of books from the publisher and I live in a small New York apartment and I don't have anywhere to put them. So I've just made a point of giving them all away pretty much as quickly as they come in. And so I was trying to come up with creative ways to do giveaways. And so I would do these fan art contests where the bar for entry would be very low. You know, like um, take a picture of, of yourself with one of my books or like 
make a diorama of like your favorite scene in the books, like, which is something like you could do that in second grade overnight so that anyone could enter. And I would always pick some entries from people that were clearly like making the effort, but maybe didn't have all of the skill and practice to do something amazing. But there would also be entries that were just mind-blowing in their beauty and like the effort that was put into them. And people started to become friends through these contests where they would be like, I can't wait to see what this person enters every contest and they're always so creative and I can't wait to see what they're gonna do for this. And like, they would talk to each other and encourage each other and congratulate each other and support each other. And it just became fun. And it's generated like so much art. Um, people started getting tattoos uh, based on the books. Like there are literally hundreds of people who have demon cycle tattoos which was mind blowing when it first happened. You know, and at first I felt a lot of responsibility. I was like, oh, you got a tattoo. Like, what if I kill your favorite character? <laughs> like, I'm probably gonna kill your favorite character. And so I would worry about that sort of thing, but then it just, it sort of reached critical mass. And uh, it's, it's odd to say, but I've, I've gotten used to it a little bit. <laughs> I wanna jump back to, to something you said, and it's not so much a question as an anecdote slash life lesson here. Uh, you were talking about how you had the, the teacher that told you when you wrote the story and kind of had the, the plagiarism conversation. Sixth grade was my plagiarism conversation with my English teacher where I had taken a uh, like a Twilight Zone style monkey paws story. I mean, it was trope ridden left and right, mm. but she gave me that plagiarism talk and I'm, I'm still angry at you, Miss Mahoney. I'm harboring that grudge, but it's kind of like one of those Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross kind of moments where, you know, you come in and you can kind of see the two different types of people, whereas you took with it and ran. We're like, yeah, I did something awesome. Meanwhile, I was like, you know what? That's it. I'm done. I'm never doing this again <laughs> kind of thing. So don't let people get you down is a life lesson I'm trying to get here. <laughs> Well, and this is, this is sort of the, the, the wonderful thing about art in general um, and books in particular is, is that a million people can read the same book and every person reads a different book. And that's what's wonderful about it. It can be frustrating at times too when people take meaning from your work that you didn't intend, but it also just sort of shows that the book itself is only part of the adventure. Like, some, like the rest of it is what the reader brings to the book. And so as I've gotten older, I've started to realize a lot of books that I thought were bad when I was younger were just not for me. Mm -hmm. um, and, th and that just the effort of writing a book that's coherent and understandable is an enormous accomplishment alone. And so, uh, you know, the, the odds of me giving a book one star now, any book are, are really slim because I realized just how much goes into just telling a coherent story um, and that, and how a lot of times, like just maybe that book wasn't meant for me. Like maybe my experience or the way I look at the world just didn't jive with this, but that doesn't mean that it's bad or that it didn't affect somebody else in a profound way. What is that writing process like for you? How do you, how do you go about starting editing? Uh, it's, it's changed over the years quite a bit. The first book, uh, I just made it up as I went along. I was taking this writing class at NYU and I, um, it was like a continuing education, you know, night school, no credit class after I graduated college. And one of the assignments was write the first chapter in a fantasy novel. And I wrote this little story about this boy named Arlen who could never go more than a day's walk from his house 
or half a day's walk because he had to be home in time to get behind the magic symbols before the demons come out. And so it was a three page little thing. But I kept thinking about like, you know, like he would go to this one hill that was as far as he'd ever been from home and like look out at the world and, and like wonder what was out there. And so I kept thinking like, well, what is out there? And so I started basically just writing his journey and making it up as I went along. Um, and that was the first version of that book that I sent to the agent. And as he rightly pointed out, it completely falls apart in the third act because I had no plan. And so I, I had to throw away about 60% of that book, keep the core story that worked, and then just redo the whole rest in a structured way that really had a beginning, middle, and an end, and told a coherent story that ended where I wanted it to end, because I had sort of painted myself into a corner in the, in the first version. And ever since then, outlining has been the rule of the day. I'm very careful to outline everything. The, the book that I'm working on right now, I'm working on the sequel to The Desert Prince, and I've written very little prose so far, but I have 130 pages of outline. And that outline is incredibly detailed, like breaks down every chapter, breaks down whose POV it is, what the goal of that chapter is, and all the specific scenes, including some bits of dialogue and, and like, you know, where plot points need to occur in order to, to march it steadily towards the, you know, build the tension in the way that I want. Um, and so with each successive book, that outline process has gotten more and more detailed to the point where it's almost a first draft. You know, like you can read my outline right now and get the entire story and know exactly what happens and, and even get most of the emotional beats. And then when I write the prose, it's layering, it's layering flesh onto that skeleton. And um, it allows me to focus on how the characters feel about what's happening rather than me figuring out what's going to happen. So I like, they get, they get themselves into a fix. I already know how they're going to get out of the fix. And so I can focus on the emotional content of what they're going through because I've already solved all the story problems. And so I think that that process has worked really well for me over the years. It's definitely more work than just discovery writing where you, where you make it up as you go along but I think it works a lot better for me and it, and it soothes my anxiety a little bit as I'm telling the story. You know, I know plenty of people who just make it up as they go along and they write incredible books and, and are enormously successful. So there's no right or wrong way to do it, but everybody's brain works differently and that's the way it works best for me. You uh, mentioned you were a comic book fan. Uh, do you still find uh, time to keep up with them? I did for many, many years. Like, pretty much all of my reading dropped off when my second daughter was born. Um, she is uh, not quite five now. So I'm sort of hoping like, you know, around five or six, you start to get a chunk of your life back. So uh, I switched to audiobooks for the last couple of years because it was just, you know, I could get out of the house and take a walk and listen to an audiobook and still enjoy stories uh, and the kinds of stories that I like. But sitting down and reading, uh, no, <laughs> like, like not with a hyperactive kid in the, in the house, especially during the last couple of years when the whole family's in the house. And so, uh, I sort of dropped off going to the comic shop, uh, up until a couple of years ago, I lived two blocks from Forbidden Planet in Manhattan, which is one of the, you know, biggest comic shops 
in the world. And uh, I would go every Wednesday on new release day, scan the shelves, take the books that I liked and read them. And so I was keeping up well into my adulthood, but the last couple of years uh, I've dropped off a little bit and uh, I'll have to get back into it once I get some free reading time again. Um, so I'm mostly getting my fix from, from the MCU these days. We, uh, I'm not allowed to say the actual name of this game because Sarah likes to keep this somewhat PG, um, but Kiss Mary Ditch is what we're going to call it. I know you were a big Claremont fan, so we're going to do a Cla Chris Claremont edition here. So Kiss Mary okay. Ditch, Mutant Massacre, Days of Future Past, or The Dark Phoenix Saga. Wow. Okay. Um, Days of Future Past, Kiss, Dark Phoenix Saga, Mary, Mutant Massacre, Ditch. Oh. Um, because the Mutant Massacre, like it really, they introduced a lot of new characters and they had them come in and kill established characters. A lot. And, and I don't, I don't, I didn't like a lot of those new characters. Like I felt like, um, it started to get goofy. Like the thing that I liked about the X-Men were they like, they had these powers and they were sort of useful, but also had a lot of drawbacks. And it was, it was about their lives and about how they tried to, to be seen by society. And, and, and what resonated with me, with me as like a nerdy kid was the sort of like outcast nature of the mutants, um, both the X-Men and the New Mutants. In the latter books, when they had sort of like run that as much as they could, they started int introducing these much more ridiculous characters Mr. Sinister, like Apocalypse, you know, we're just like, what's Apocalypse's deal? I don't even know, you know, like, like and, and, and so it, it, it became less about mostly real people stories that were sort of like, you know, why do my power, you know, like, why do I keep freezing everything when I'm trying to like, you know, talk to a girl or, you know, whatever, and, and, and moved it into this sort of like much more like over the top superhero stuff. And it's not that that stuff was bad, but it wasn't for me the way the other stuff was. Um, whereas like Dark Phoenix Saga, like, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this sort of like transition of, of somebody who was like the, the, the paragon of everything that's good in the Marvel universe, like being corrupted by this infinite power, that resonated, that worked for me. And Days of Future Past, the same thing, like the sense of like, unless we do something, the future is gonna be a nightmare. Uh, that's, I mean, that's every day of our lives these days. <laughs> so it's still, that still resonates powerfully today. Whereas the mutant massacre, like what did that really say other than we've introduced so many of these like supporting cast mutants that it's starting to get, it, get to be difficult to keep track of them. So why don't we have some people come along and murder a bunch of them so we can scale back down. I feel like it also kind of set up their their marketing strategy from that point on. It kind of went from being a character-driven kind of, like you were saying, those those higher kind of story beats versus just trying to set up that entire future of it where, you know, you could go in different directions that they were going to go in, where it was more plot-based, I guess, is, is for lack of a better word. And that was, that was the shift away from Claremont, really. I mean, Claremont wanted, like, a tight family of books that mostly focused on, like, what I was talking about, like the, the ways that your powers would, would cause problems in your life. The same way like Spider-Man couldn't pay his bills because he was always trying to save the city. 
And then, but those books were selling so well that Marvel wanted to keep adding and adding and adding. So they wanted X-Force and they wanted X-Factor and they wanted, and, and like, that was the shift away from Claremont because he couldn't write all of those books and couldn't keep control of them. And then Marvel's like, well, now we have to tie them all together. And so every year there has to be some big event where they all have to come together and, and do stuff so that people who are only reading X-Force will start reading X-Factor and start reading X-Men. And, and that was where I, it kind of lost me. Um, I liked those sort of like tight books where like, okay, I'm just gonna read New Mutants and I don't need to read the other ones. And like, I'm gonna get involved and invested in these characters. And uh, I sort of didn't like having my arm twisted into reading a book that I didn't necessarily wanna read just because I needed to find part three of the Mutant Massacre or whatever. Yeah, I, I feel you. It, <laughs> I, I don't quite have the same dislike of, of Apocalypse and Mr. Sinister as you, but you know, I, I, can, I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. But I still, I still, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Sh Mr. Sinister is solid in uh, Marvel Strike Force on on uh, iOS. I use them all the time. Like, I've seen um, some bonus came from it. Yeah, no, my my Marauders team is actually does quite well in the arena. Uh, <laughs> so like, I, I can have a love for it, but still see, you know, what's not for me and what, and because obviously they wouldn't have used those tactics if there wasn't an audience for it and so what didn't work for me was obviously working for somebody because it was making tons of money and selling tons of book and and fans really seemed to love it and so uh this is sort of what i was saying about art is that just because something's not for you doesn't mean it's not great there are a lot of fight scenes in the desert prince not just with the demons but with the creation martial arts a lot of bone crushing grappling. My partner, he does Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and we watch a lot of MMA fights. And um, so your writing of fight scenes makes me think that you might do some hand-to-hand -hand combat perhaps. Uh, I personally um, do kickboxing, which is uh, a lot less involved than MMA, um, mm -hmm. but I'm old, you know, <laughs> like uh, I, Took, when I was in college, I did some kickboxing and I did um, kendo, which is a Japanese sword fighting form. Um, but I didn't really keep up with either of them after college. And so it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I you know, was starting to feel out of shape and um, went to the gym and uh, was looking at personal trainers. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll take the kickboxing class. You know? and, and so I got a a trainer who's been with me for years, who's been teaching me kickboxing and I love it. And it really helps me think about some of the technical aspects of fighting. But a lot of the, the stuff in the books comes from just, I follow martial arts choreographers the way other people follow movie stars. You know, after like the matrix, I was like, oh, the choreographer was Wu Ping, what else has he done? And I would go like find all of those other movies and watch those. And so, that is something that like, it's like watching a dance, it's beautiful. Um, and we used to watch uh, in college, we would watch like the early UFC fights, you know, back when it was like, it could only be done in Denver and there were no, no rules. And like, it was like, well, you know, can the, can the jujitsu guy win against the, the, the boxer or, you know, like is the person who's at karate gonna, gonna, how are they gonna fare against the person who's good at Kung Fu? It was before mixed martial arts even existed. It was like, that was what brought it about was like, 
these different styles coming together and competing against each other and then people sort of taking the most effective bits and blending them into something that is its own thing. So that has always fascinated me and, and um, I've studied it and, and there was a good show on Discovery Channel called Fight Quest that I used to watch where these martial artists would travel from country to country like studying different styles and then seeing how they could apply that into their own techniques. And I really liked sort of seeing like, well, what's the Hapkido style and how is that different from, you know, jujitsu or how is that different from, how is jujitsu different from judo and blending a lot of that into the martial arts in my books to make it plausible and um, understandable and exciting in a way that it isn't always, you know, like you can always tell when you're reading a, an adventure book, some people were just like, okay, like we got to get to the fight and then I'm going to wrap it up in two seconds and then we're going to move on because it's not about the fight. Whereas for me, it's kind of like every fight is like, you know, somebody comes at you with a knife, you're in real danger. And so I get into the headspace of the, of the fighters and have them really thinking about what they're doing and thinking about being scared, but also trying to stay focused and, and, choreographing the moves really helps me with that. And I really enjoy that from a reader standpoint. Some of that comes from reading like Ari Salvatore books where he would choreograph, choreograph, wow. Uh, choreograph every, every thrust and swing of the, of the scimitar and I ate it up. And so I really like incorporating that, but I don't, I don't throw it in needlessly. I, like every fight has meaning, every fight establishes something about the character or moves the story along in some significant way, but I do lavish a little attention on the individual moves the same way that some writers will lavish a bunch of extra attention on like all the food at a feast scene or, you know, all the lacing on a dress or whatever. Like that's, you can see where my love is. And there seem to be some ties to even like historical battle techniques. Do you do any research into like there was a scene with shields where it reminded me a little of the Napoleonic um, battle techniques where it'd be like the square format? So the idea for the books was that because they're fighting demons, humans have been hunted basically nearly to extinction. There aren't a lot of humans left. So humans don't really go to war with each other much anymore um, because they're just fighting for their lives against demons. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to get in close when you're fighting a demon. You want to keep your distance. And so I, I made the decision that there would be no swords in my books um, because it's not a practical tool for fighting a demon because you don't want to get within swords reach of a demon because they have long arms and, and will kill you. So I switched to spears and um, spears and shields. And so then I went into history and, you know, it's like, like uh, the Greek hoplites were the sort of the, the most famous example of the, of the spear and shield fighting. And so some of their like phalanx technique techniques were cribbed from history, but that was a sort of a starting point. And then once you add the fantasy elements in, you have to make it adaptations to, to work that into the story. And so a lot of the techniques evolved from there um, but I would steal things from everywhere. There, there were these um, Japanese firefighters uh, in uh, medieval Japan that, that like would carry ladders everywhere and they could run up the ladder and sort of look around and balance on the top of it. And so I, I was like, oh, I need, I need to put that in the books. And so like they lure 
demons into these mazes and like the there's a, a group called the watchers that run along the, the walls the tops of the walls looking down and calling out where everybody is and they they all carry a ladder with them and they can attach them together and run right up it and look really far and then run back down and give reports and so instead of carrying spears they just carry their ladders and they fight with their ladders instead and so then like i had to invent a ladder fighting martial art and um there's there's some ladder fighting in the desert prince that like i was very proud of because it was like in a crowded room and like there wasn't a lot of space but like it really sort of shows the art form the same way that like bicycle cops are trained to use their bike uh as a defensive weapon or like like it's it's interesting when you have adaptations like that and apply them to a story. Obviously, talking about this, uh, you'd had to do a lot of research. Uh, so, what is the strangest thing in your search history? <laughs> oh God, well, we can't talk about that. Um, <laughs> every every writer's search history looks like a like a serial killer's search history. Uh, you know, like I'm researching poisons. I'm researching like you know pressure points that can kill or cripple you. Like I'm researching, you know, like there's so much murder in my search history and I don't think that I'm alone I think every writer is like that um it does make me wonder what like the google algorithms think of me and like if I'm some sort of if like all writers are on like a government watch list for like potential uh serial killers um but it's it's also like just the fun part of the research you know like what can like punching a pressure point really do to a person like how can you make fantasy drugs plausible rather than just the like i'm gonna drink this potion and i will appear dead for for 24 hours and then i'll wake back up and it'll be totally normal and and like that's not how drugs work um and so because i think because i had this sort of background in pharmaceuticals i would try to make all of the the fantasy cures in the books more plausible I sort of left them some books of old world science that they could use so they could have a head start on, on creating things that were more potent, but still based in reality so that the reader doesn't feel cheated when, you know, a drug does something that it shouldn't be able to do or when, you know, a, a surgeon does something they shouldn't be able to do. I have two doctors on call that I talk to about like battlefield surgery you know, and I'll, I'll call it like my, my uh, father-in-law is one of them. Um, and I'll send him a text and I'll be like, well, you know, if there was a, if there was a knife in your lung, you know, and, and the knife is created to seal, like what would happen if you just pull that out? And like, or like, or if, or even if you left it in, like, would you still be able to do something like, you know, or like how much would you have the same strength you normally do? Or like, you know, like, and, and uh, some of that is for, you know how when the hero gets beat up in a movie, but they don't seem to lose any of their mobility or strength or whatever. I didn't want that. I wanted to have the loss of mobility and strength and have them have to overcome those things. And so I would really, I have these like long text threads with my doctor friends that are basically just like, you know, how much could you actually do if like that tendon was severed or, or whatever. And also for the, like the post battle scenes where okay, you know, the hero's hurt, but we need to get them up and running again. What can you actually do with the tools at hand in order to put them back together? Um, and so that there's a lot of research about that 
Um, and I've actually started thanking them in my uh, acknowledgments in the books. <laughs> you know, like, thanks, Dr. Green, for t explaining to me what happens when you pull the knife out. Based on some of the conversations we've had today, I, I, I'm going to make an assumption that at one point you were a gamer uh, as far as playing D&D and such. Um, do you still find time to play? I will be at Game Hole Con in Wisconsin uh, at the end of this month. So on October 22nd, I am playing a live stream game uh, at 10 p.m. with uh, a member of the Gygax family and a bunch of other uh, sort of well-known streamers. I love gaming. Um, I game through all throughout college and high school and even like I started in elementary school. Um, I was the kid in Stranger Things, like, you know, with his friends in the basement, like fighting the Demogorgon. But what I discovered, particularly in college, was that people would want to play D&D. I would DM. I would write my own story. I would, you know, not use a module. I would write up the whole story. I would write these elaborate backstories for all of the characters and be like, here's your motivation. And like, like this is the starting point and, and here's where you're going to go from there. And, you know, all you have to do is talk to this innkeeper and find out X and then you can start your journey. And they would just kill the innkeeper and take all of his money. And then I would have to figure out how to get the story back on track. Um, and so I learned a lot about writing. I learned what keeps a small crowd of people entertained, what bores them, what, uh, what you need to do to keep everyone engaged. And I think that that was really valuable training for a storyteller because it kept me from wasting time on, on stuff that people didn't actually care about and kept me focused on advancing the story and keeping them engaged. But what it also did was use up all of my creative energy entertaining five people so that I didn't have any creative energy left to, to write, you know, my own work. Um, and it wasn't until I graduated college and like my D&D group, you know, dispersed to the wind after graduation that I suddenly realized that I wanted to write books again because I wasn't sucking at that well of creativity writing games, you know, for a handful of my friends. And so I don't play D&D as much as I used to because uh, that's where all my creative energy will go if I let it. Um, it's the same reason why I don't have games on my computer because that's where all my energy will go if I let it. Um, and so staying focused on, on putting my creative energy where I want it means sort of giving up some of those things that I love, but I still will play charity D&D games like this one coming up, which is um, for Extra Life that earns money for hospitals. So I used to do a thing called Author D&D. If you go on my YouTube channel or my Twitch, you can see games where I would play, um, I would get a bunch of authors together at a convention and we would take a couple of hours to play D&D. So, you know, me and Scott Lynch and Elizabeth Baer and Joe Abercrombie and Pat Rothfuss and Diana Rowland and um, Mary Robin at Kowal, you know, like we would get gaming groups together just based on whoever was at the convention and we would film it and um, put it on. Sort of, this was before streaming really hit it big. This was like the early 2010s. So a lot of that content is still online and you can watch it. And uh, a couple of times a year, I make more. I, I still love it. I just don't have the time to do it as much as I used to. I'm not sure if you get, if, if you get a chance to, or if you enjoy doing the miniature style table games, 
Jumping back to superheroes, there's a new one out right now called Marvel Crisis Protocol, which is just a battle game with miniature uh, superhero miniatures. Amazing. So give it a shot if you get a chance. I, you know, I've been waiting for my older daughter to get to the right age to start doing this. Um, over quarantine, she like she's turned 13. And over quarantine, we watched all 26 MCU movies and all of the all of the Marvel spin-off TV shows. And so she's up to speed now. I think maybe the time is right to, to play like a Marvel superheroes miniature game. Um, <laughs> I've been waiting for this day. I've been planning for this day for so many years. Now you have the chance. Downside is you got to paint them yourself, but still, it's fun. Well, that can be fun too. <laughs> um, we also um, made... Uh, we made a miniature of olive paper from the Desert Prince with Hero Forge miniatures. So Hero Forge has uh, an engine to build custom characters on their website. And so they asked me to put together like a custom character for both Olive and Darren. And I did. And you can watch the video of how we put the character together and, and what we did to bring, bring them to life in, in miniature form. And like some of the challenges of making an intersex character into a miniature that, that uh, represented who they were. And uh, you can even order one if you want to. And it was really a fun project and really like helped me think about things in different ways uh, while doing it. So it's, it's a ton of fun. We are a library podcast. So how have libraries impacted your life? When I was younger, um, I read comic books pretty exclusively. I would say that I, I stole a comic book from my brother's room. Uh, it was X-Men 163, uh, 162, sorry, X-Men 162. Um, and I read that and I loved it. And I started reading comic books exclusively to the point where it became worrisome to my parents. My dad worked across the street from the library in White Plains, and uh, he remembered that I had loved reading The Hobbit. And so he went into the library, went to the fantasy section, picked a book at random. I mean, may, I don't, maybe he gave a little thought to it, but like he didn't read fantasy. So, you know, came home and I was sitting on my bed reading comic books and he threw the book onto the bed and he said, you read too many comic books. You need to read a real book. Read this. That book was The Wish Song of Shannara by Terry Brooks. And I read it and I loved it. And so from that point on, I basically moved into the library. Um, I would go uh, on Saturday mornings, I would like take the bus into uh, to the Galleria Mall in White Plains and I would go to the comic shop. And then I would go across the street to the library and I would just like haunt the, the fantasy section of the library. First, it was to find the other Shannara books. Um, and then, you know, at the time, there were only three of them. And so I read those three books. And then it was like, what else am I going to read? And so I would just, the wonderful thing about libraries is that nobody's looking over your shoulder. You can take a stack of books and go over to the table and, and page through them and figure out what you want. And I discovered so many writers that way. You know, it became sort of like my second home. You know, like uh, I would spend hours at the library just picking out the book that I wanted to take home. Um, and, you know, sometimes the library staff would leave you alone and sometimes they would come over and offer suggestions that like were life-changing. And like that 
was another thing that I really enjoyed about it. It was, it was you know, they would, they would know enough to be like, okay, this person is involved and in they're, I'm not going to bother them. But other times they would see you like staring at the bookshelf, like scratching your chin and come over and like talk to you about it. And, you know, who's to say like what my life would be like if that hadn't happened. Um, and it all came from my dad taking a trip to the library. Both of my parents are voracious readers and voracious library users. And so I think it troubled them that I wasn't reading as much as they were. And, and so, uh, you know, the types of books we read are very different, but it is, we are a reading family and a lot of that comes from the library. We've mentioned a, a couple of different authors here. We've Terry Brooks, R.A. Salvatore, um, George R. Martin. Are there any underrated fantasy classics that you would recommend to someone? Celia Friedman. She writes as C.S. Friedman. Uh, her two biggest series, I would say, are, are the Cold Fire trilogy and the Magister trilogy. And they are a masterclass in world building and storytelling and like character development and making you love flawed characters and making you like deeply invest in a, in a magic system and world building in a way that's still compelling story-wise. I think that she, she was an enormous influence on me and is so tragically underrated because those books are just fantastic. So if I were to name one author, uh, C.S. Friedman, but there, there's so much out there right now that's good. Like new authors, like, um, Rebecca Kwong, she writes as R.F. Kwong, like her Poppy War series is amazing. Evan Winter's Rage of Dragons books, two of them are out. The third one is coming out soon. Those are amazing. Gail Carragher has sort of like an endless uh, uh, series of like, you know, Regency-based uh, supernatural stories that I really enjoy reading. And it's it's shifted lately into audio, but I think that that's just a temporary change because there's kids in the house um but there's also no bad way to enjoy a story um do you have any audiobooks that you're reading or listening to right now uh well i've been reading like i've been for the last couple months i've been doing quality checks on the desert prince audiobooks not every author does that but it's something that's important to me i feel like if i'm going to uh promote content i should be really familiar with that content but i also just finished the Poppy War series. Um, uh, Shannon Chakraborty's um, Empire of Gold was the most recent one. So that series, I just finished that fairly recently and really love those. And uh, I really like Pierce Brown's audiobooks, the Red Rising series, and then now the follow-up series. Uh, his narrator is so good. I like those. Uh, and sometimes I'll do pop culture books or, or like, you know, I'll read things like The Tipping Point just to, to get a break from the fantasy stuff. Sometimes I'll, I'll do something else. Uh, I really loved um, Project Hail Mary. I just read, uh, just listened to the audiobook recently. That is by Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian. Um, and it has the same magic that made The Martian so good. Absolutely worth your time uh, to listen to. And the narrator does a fantastic job too. Oh, still on my list. I need to read that one. So good. So good. Uh, as we start to, to wrap up here, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Wow. Suddenly on the spot. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I feel like we covered a, a wide range of things. I don't really have a lot to add. 
Desert Prince audiobook is on sale uh, as of yesterday. We had to do a little uh, re-recording work, and so it was delayed quite a bit, but uh, it is now on sale, which I'm thrilled about. The book has just launched in Poland and Germany, um, and so it's only been out for a couple of days there, so people are still reading and like posting excited pictures from the bookstores, which is thrilling to me. Um, I love seeing different covers and, and different interpretations of the work. There's some other stuff that I'm not allowed to talk about yet, so I won't talk <laughs> about that. I'll just pointedly mention that there's something that I'm not allowed to talk about. <laughs> um, yeah. And we really appreciate you coming on. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was a delight. This has been a blast just being able to talk, you know, gaming and comics and, and all this kind of fun stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun for me too. Uh, you know, I never know if books take a couple of years to come out. This one in particular, because I was ending a series and starting a new series, um, took a little longer than most. And so that coupled with the fact that there's no book touring during these plague days we live in, uh, mm -hmm. my sort of spiel about the books is not as polished as it, as it was when I was on tour for the previous series. And so I, every time there's an interview, I like, I like, what if I forgotten how to talk? <laughs> and so it, this was actually a really relaxing environment and your questions were so great that I like just, it was wonderful. So thank you so much. I'm going to kind of pull back the curtain just for a moment here because I'm, if, if my math is correctly and, you know, this is what's popping up on my feed and I'm kind of excited because it's a, a nerd thing. We are recording on the 13th of October, but as of yesterday, the Hitchhiker's Guide was originally published and we're now 42 years outside of the, uh, the, the life universe and everything. So the question is now, we are at oh, that shit. moment where, where we were at 42 years exactly as of yesterday. So this is the closest I can get to celebrating it with people. That's fantastic. <laughs> I didn't realize that. I love that book. The movie was, was bizarre, but also sort of wonderful in its own way. Mm -hmm. But um, that little book was such a joy in college. Feel like everybody should it's like one of those books like um oh the places you'll go that like everybody should pack with them on the way to college <laughs> don't forget a towel you know exactly it definitely influences a lot of stuff whether you know directly or indirectly but it definitely helped find some humor and some stuff that normally wouldn't have found humor yeah and we need that we need that more than ever that that wraps it up on my side <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us on Unstacked. The Desert Prince and the Demon Cycle series are in the library collection for checkout. The newest release, The Desert Prince, can be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendor. Also check out his website, petervbrett.com, P-E-T-E-R-V-B-R-E-T-T.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.